at, at one point, you know, we, we couldn't hear from him and we knew he was hiding in a bathroom and there was minutes before we knew that there was Al Qaeda out on the streets below. You know, we, there, there were plenty of moments like that. Welcome to episode three of Underrated, where I interview Natasha Westheimer. Natasha studied at Oxford and created her own major in water management, where she now works in Jerusalem. In addition, she starred in a book called The Fox Hunt, which is a fascinating story about how she saved a refugee from Yemen who is destined for execution. She specializes in managing conflict around the environment, as well as transboundary water management. And I find her stories absolutely fascinating, especially around activism and different ways of helping the world. I hope you'll enjoy her stories and take as much away from it as I did. Before we jump right in, just a quick ad break for my own underrated company. This podcast has been brought to you and edited and produced by Speedlancer.com. Speedlancer assembles curated teams of freelancers for your various needs, such as content, design, and podcasting teams. Rather than having to hire and manage an individual freelancer, with Speedlancer, you get the best of a pre-assembled team. Contact us today and simply mention Underrated for a special 15% off podcast deal. Hey, Natasha, thank you for joining. Hi, Adam. Good to speak to you. You too. It's great having a longtime family friend on the podcast yeah it's, it's an honor to be a part of it you've got a really inspiring story mm-hmm. i thought it'd be something a bit left of field <laughs> if you pardon the pun yeah um, <laughs> um but yeah super inspired do you want to tell the audience a bit about who you are what is your name sure. why do you do what you do sure what do you do where are you where do you live yeah <laughs> Yeah. Small question. No big, big question. That's it's the question. But I'll give you a, a <laughs> I'll everyone. give you a taste. So my name is Natasha Westheimer. I'm currently in Jerusalem. I've been here now for about five years altogether, and I'm working in water management, working within a UN affiliated agency here, specifically working on Palestinian economic development, and. Um, supporting but not supplanting any sort of peace agreement between the Israeli and Palestinian authorities, but working really on the sectoral level to try to create real change on the ground in a sustainable way in hopes that it could, you know, have a create a better enabling environment for a peace agreement. Um, I've been working on water since, yeah, I started work getting into water in my undergrad degree. I, I went to the University of Maryland in the U.S. and studied uh, I did a major in Jewish studies, and I was focusing on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but I wanted something a bit more than that and couldn't quite figure out what it was within the context of Maryland's school, like major programs. So I ended up creating my own major in international development and conflict management. And through that, I was able to integrate some of my Jewish studies and my my focus on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict into a bigger question on how do we think about development? How do we think about sustainable development? Um, And through that, got into looking at water. And in one of my classes, we were assigned a river basin where we had to look at the science, ethics, and law of that river basin. And I chose the Jordan River, which is a river that's not just holy to half of humanity. It's where Jesus was baptized. Um, It's present in both Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, but it's also a river that's shared between the Jordanian, Israeli, and Palestinian people, and is really, uh, as I learned through this investigation, held hostage to the conflict here 
in a way that I was surprised by, especially growing up in a Jewish community and understanding Israel through one lens. I really sort of began to question what, how the conflict is affecting the, the, the land, the, the environment, and thus the people. And through that, I got into working on environmental peace building and what, what we call transboundary water management. And that's sort of how I got here, like specifically on the ground working on water issues. But being here, of course, once you dive into this world, it's so many opportunities open to grow, uh, ask questions, learn new things, and sort of became, my activism became pretty central, not just to my work, but to my communal life and to my uh, my personal life in, in many ways. And, and, and that's, yeah, that's sort of a little bit of my story wow. of how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> so for those of us who are new to water management, right, mm. I just know that I turn on the tap and I get some water out. Like, yeah. what, what is... What is this all about? What What is it? So, yeah, we have... And where did you learn about, like, why did you... Why, why water? Why water? Uh, I mean, okay, to answer the first question, yeah, the water is, um, you know, we have so much water on this planet, but less than 1% or 2% of that water is actually drinkable, and it's not necessarily available everywhere that people are. So... Uh, water managers, there are so many different types of water managers, but they think about how we can get water from point A to point B, from the ground underneath us, from the streams, sometimes from the ocean, if we can treat it in a certain way. Um, But how do we get it from these sources to the people? And sometimes that's complicated when, for example, as we see where I am here, water doesn't follow political borders. The groundwater here is shared is it's both underneath the West Bank and Israel. The Jordan River, as I said, is shared between three governments. So it's also about, you know, cooperation. It's about large infrastructure to move it. It's about thinking how to also protect ecosystems and not prevent environmental harm. So it requires quite a lot of different types of people, engineers, scientists, social scientists, and, you know, um, water quality folks, Government, governance people, it's a, it's a whole world of folks that are getting that water into your tap and that water that you can drink into your tap. Wow. So in that particular region of the world mm. where three governments are sharing the same water source, I had no idea of that. Mm. Is that is that working effectively? Well, not so much. The water that's shared here is subject to various international agreements between Israel and Jordan, between... Israel and the Palestinian Authority, in my view, and in like broad, I guess, public opinion of folks that work on these issues, um, those laws are tending to allow for Israel to maintain the most control over those resources. What that means, for example, for Palestinians who want to develop additional water sources to meet growing populations, they're subject to a, a variety of approval processes that Israel can veto at any point, and the water demand, their water demand just isn't being met. Um, So they're not receiving enough water based on World Health Organization standards. If you're receiving in your tap, let's say in Australia, 400 liters per capita per day, which is a a number, a ballpark figure we used to to explain, like how much water one person has out of the water that's available and supplied to people. Um, The World Health Organization says you need only 100. You think that's, uh, when you compare it to Australia, 400, it's it's a low standard. In Israel, they're receiving something like 250 liters per capita per day. In the West Bank, it's 
maybe 80 liters per capita per day. And in Gaza, it can be as low as 20 liters per capita per day. So well below the World Health Organization standards. And a lot of that's because the governments aren't managing the water in an equitable way. And do you think all, it's, it's all three governments to blame? Or is it sort of like one more than the other? I think in this context, I mean, especially if we're talking about in the Israeli-Palestinian context, uh, Israel absolutely has um, what we call hegemony or like regional power over the water sources. That means that the Palestinian Authority doesn't have the same, they're not playing in the same ballpark. Of course, there's governance issues on both sides on how water is managed that impacts the provision of services to the people. At the end of the day, the people are the ones that are suffering from maybe poor leadership, but the, the you know Palestinian leadership is also doing what they can given the circumstances where they have a lot of restrictions on their ability to really develop the sector. So what are some areas where you think you can have an impact or like what, what is the focus area of yours pertaining to water in that region? And also why that region? Why not other areas in the world where water is an issue? Yeah, I mean, it, that's a good question. The Working here is really no different than working on these issues anywhere in the world. We can all agree that water is a basic right and that, as I said, nature doesn't follow these political borders. So ensuring that everyone has basic rights to water um, we have to work with everyone who shares those resources. Here, it's Palestinians and Israelis, but you know we have these same challenges of managing shared resources between the U.S. and Mexico, or even in Australia between states, between users, between farmers and industry and homes. I'm working here as just one place I can possibly work on these issues that really are relevant all over the world. You're right. It's a water doesn't discriminate. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So w- what is one way that that you try to get involved and have an impact in these areas? Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, my passion is to be able to work on the community level. I think there's a lot of interesting knowledge that communities have, no matter where you are in the world, on how to manage water in that context the most effectively. Uh, And there's, you know, we up in in the decision-making level can dream up big solutions and big infrastructure programs and big policies uh, that we think is improving. But unless we're really getting, you know, buy-in from the community and even knowledge and information from the community in a really inclusive way, um, that's, that's the only way we'll be effective in the work we're doing. So that's, that's my, where I, I would like to continue working towards is integrating the work that I'm doing maybe on a more political or decision-making level with the local knowledge that we have that's extensive, not just here, but all over the world. And what have you learned from, I mean, being on the ground uh, from these other cultures, like the Palestinian culture as a, as a Jew? And how did that impact maybe your other focus areas, like the books of the fox hunt, for example? And maybe, I mean, go to the fox hunt afterwards, but yeah. that's an amazing story in itself. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this can tie into that. Sure. Yeah, I think my my Jewish heritage, of course, is pretty central to the work that I'm doing. I mean, at least from my personal historical, however we want to call it, place, I I sort of have a sense of obligation to do this work from my family's heritage. This includes the work that I'm doing here. It includes the work that is documented in the fox hunt that we can talk about after. But um, yeah, my I'm a granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. I was my grandmother was born in a concentration camp. And growing up, she didn't really share her story with me, uh, which was a largely a result of some of the emotional, mental, physical traumas that she experienced as a survivor. Um, 
which meant that, you know, it was very hard for me to learn about my heritage. By the time I was, you know, a teenager, I really was desperate to learn more. And I tried to retrace my family's footsteps with my grandfather. And we were looking for this diary um, that my great grandfather kept while my while he was in, in the concentration camp that documented my, my my grandmother's life in the camp and my my whole you know that whole family's life in the camp. But he sold this diary after liberation, and I was desperate to find it. And through this process, I was able to find my my great grandfather's diary, and it was really you know after almost a decade of searching, we found it. It was in a museum in Germany. Um, we found it because we saw a ref, a reference to it in some, you know, historical document from the concentration camp. And we, we tried retracing it and managed to find it in a museum. Wow. And so that story now became mine. And, and, and through reading his story and getting to know his story, it was very clear to me. And this was like, you know, as a teenager that, um, that my family, my great grandfather, really believed that nobody should be persecuted for what they believe in and that everyone deserved the right to live in freedom and free from oppression um, and with the freedom that, yeah, my family now has, that my my grandmother had the, the opportunity to achieve as well. So, yeah, my my Jewish heritage absolutely is what's driving me to um, – to do the work that I'm doing, to have this sense of obligation that I have to support marginalized communities, including the Palestinian communities here, but also to to be open to supporting, you know, other forms of, you know, h- however this form develops across my personal and professional life. It, it also is what drove me to respond to Muhammad when he reached out and asked for help, which I, you know, invite you to, you know, if, if we want to transition to talk about the fox hunt. Yeah, let's talk about it, for sure. Yeah. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, uh, you know, it was one of my little side projects here. I was involved in um, a, a program called uh, Gather. Um, it's a program from Seeds of Peace, which is an NGO here that works on um, in various forms of Israeli-Palestinian peacebuilding um, work. And this at this Gather program, there was a conference actually focused on social entrepreneurship um, and peace building. And in this conference, I met someone named Mohammed al-Samawi. He was from Yemen. He was the first person that I'd ever met from Yemen, but I'd studied a lot about Yemen. Um, Yemen is probably predicted to be the first country to ever totally run out of water. I mean, now with, you know, the civil war and the, the, the violence that's gone on there the last um, four or five years or so, it's it feels more alive than ever. But um, I was really excited to speak to someone who uh, who was from Yemen, um, and I, so I met him at this conference. And I remember that he had a. Where was the conference? A, the conference was called Gather Nine Six Two. It was a social entrepreneurship and peace building conference. And I remember he pitched an app that was very needed in Yemen, where they were currently experiencing a lot of food rations, uh, and the app would allow you to put in the food that you had in your pantry, and it would generate recipes. Um, for what you could make given the food that was available to you. And I was really, um, yeah, fascinated um, by that idea and connected to him and followed up with him right after that. And a few weeks later... What country did you meet in? In Jordan. Oh, in Jordan. Wow, okay. Yeah, we were actually on the Dead Sea. It was a beautiful place to stay. On the other side um, of the Dead Sea. Yeah, <laughs> I've only been the other side. side. There is another side. Yeah. yeah. Sure. And... 
three weeks after the conference, I got an email from someone else that I met at this conference that basically said, our friend Mohammed like needs some help. He has been receiving some death threats. Mohammed is receiving death threats because of the interfaith work that he was doing. Um, he was trying to bring, um, you know, through his own journey, he, he was drawn to, to reach out to Jews and Israelis to learn more about um, the, the shared connections we have also with Christians between the three faiths, between the three peoples. He's an amazing speaker. Yeah. Uh, yeah, when he was in Melbourne, I heard him speak about that. Just an incredible story of how he became an activist in the least likely location. Yeah, I mean, it's all documented in The Fox Hunt, the book that he wrote about this whole story, and it's really a fascinating book to read. But yeah, he was, I don't need to summarize his story. I don't need to share his story, but the, you know, the short, the short version is he was receiving death threats and this was all happening at the start of the civil war. And no matter where he went, he wasn't safe. Um, so I ended up being involved with um, three other folks from around the world to essentially via Skype um, and phone, get Muhammad out of Yemen um, and get him to the U.S. where he's now sought asylum and he's been since 2014. Wow. Just reading the reviews, New York Times book review, a gripping account of terror and escape. And did I hear right that the book is being potentially produced into a movie with the La La Land producer? That's Yeah. So exactly. Um, uh, Mark Platt, who produced La La Land. And you're going to be a character in it. We'll see. Yeah, you never know how Hollywood makes you. I could be combined with a few characters or I could be, you know, um, my own character. But they're working on the screenplay now, as I understand. Uh, it's been bought by Fox 2000 and is being turned into a, a feature film. Well, so when you got the call, obviously you didn't know that you were going to be able to save him. Did you, did you know a path by which to do this? Had you done it before? Had you looked into this kind of thing? helping refugees so ha no god no wow i have no experience in exfiltration <laughs> i zero i'm i was 25 uh 24 um yeah i had spent a summer interning at the state department in the u.s and knew about a fund that existed to help human rights defenders and i thought that would be my way to help i was just going to try to connect him with this fund um, and, and see if we can get him some money to maybe pay for whatever he needed to get out. But I ended up just joining into this bigger conversation. And mainly what we were doing was just utilizing our networks and, you know, really just trying any option we had. Um, but I had no idea what I was doing. I, I really felt like, you know, at any moment things could, I, you know, someone was trusting me with their life. Like at any moment, this could totally fall apart. Um, there's a lot of momentum, a lot of energy, a lot of support amongst all of us. I mean, from Mohammed as well, he was... How did you feel at the time? <sighs> How did I feel at the time? I mean, of course, it's very emotional to hear someone on the phone scared for their lives, especially knowing that like this was happening in the context of a pretty violent civil war. I mean, I was following the news. I was seeing horrible pictures. Um, and his phone connection would like cut out randomly, right? Exactly, yeah. I mean, at, at one point... You know, we we couldn't hear from him and we knew he was hiding in a bathroom. And there was minutes before we knew that there was Al Qaeda out on the streets below. You know, we there there were plenty of moments like that. 
Um, but I mean, what was important, what's really important is that like, I knew that, that what I was feeling was nothing compared to what he was going through and what the folks in Yemen were going through the fear and uncertainty. And that's something that, that like millions of people, refugees experienced every day. I mean, it's, it's like a crazy, it's crazy to even imagine being in that scenario, let alone being on the other end of the phone. Yeah. So what can, what can we learn from, from the book? Like what can be done in order to get more people out? Is that, is that even possible? Hmm. It's a, it's a really interesting question. You know, there's, yeah, I mean, in 2018, I think over 67, 68 million people were forcibly displaced or displaced peoples in, in this world. That's like 40 times the size of Manhattan. It's, it's a huge amount of people. And, you know, I mean, what's coming to mind now is, is that we're hearing one story and this is one person that had the privilege, really, he had the privilege of getting out of Yemen to go to this international peace building conference and network. And I had the privilege of having like already extensive networks. It was, yeah, I mean, we live in a world where we, at least now, there we, we carry so much fear and doubt of what's true and what's fake and what's a real call for help and what's not. And at least for me, after a few years at that point of working in a conflict area, I, I know the risks that, that activists are taking on a day-to-day basis to do the work that they're doing. So when someone asked me for help, I didn't question it. I knew that he actually was in a situation where he was really fearing for his life. So, I mean, what can we learn from that? Trust people more, say yes when you can, utilize your networks. And of the like, yeah, the other side of it is that like there's 65 million other people that are living as displaced peoples in the world. Like they also have stories. They also have something to share with the world about their own experience. And um, it's important to be able to ask those questions and learn about those stories. Yeah, I mean, you and Mohammed and and the whole group, um have done an amazing job at making this story mm. public. Yeah. So largely Muhammad's work. He's doing an incredible job. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that he would escape and then still commit to sharing that story to try to give back to other people. Absolutely. So yeah. you mentioned something that I actually wanted to ask you, which is how do we seek truth in a world where there is so much yeah. activity and garbage and news and fake news and you know all these different state players involved some of which are you know terrorist organizations like Mm -hmm. how do we how should we read the news and seek the truth Mm. and then when do we know to go do something and yeah um you're asking a great question. It's, it's well, how do you do it? <laughs> yeah, I guess like how do I do it is what I can answer. I I think for me, um, at least it's been central in what's gotten me to this point and what I still keep as pretty core to how I how I engage with some of these issues is is really asking questions, trying to understand the different perspectives and different lenses in which we can read a news story or. Um, understand a situation, I think is really important to understanding the full picture. I mean, anywhere around the world we're dealing with now, I mean, the total extremes in in politics, I see that like we're speaking different languages around the same issues. And it's very hard to actually try to tap into someone else's perspective when it's like a totally different language. 
Um, so for me, it's a lot of like asking questions about my own views and my own perceptions and my own assumptions around how I learn things and understand things, because maybe I won't ever get into the head of someone that thinks like Donald Trump, for example. But if I can ask questions about my own views and way of seeing things in a way that at least gets me to like challenge a little bit away, a little bit how I understand truth, um, it really gives me some freedom to to both feel more certain in what I believe in. I think asking questions is pretty clarifying sometimes. And also like sometimes be okay in sitting in the complexity of it because sometimes there isn't one truth. Sometimes there are quite a few truths and it's a really hard thing to acknowledge. We, we seek that certainty. I seek that certainty. Um, and at least that's allowed for me to be here in a way that feels honest, recognizing that there are a lot of truths on this land and through that, I can help understand what my own is. That's so true, yeah. And what do you think about social media and its impact on this? I mean, if you, if you ask Muhammad this question, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, how Muhammad was. his life. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, and that's, I'll stand behind him on that. Like, I, I couldn't have supported him without social media. I remember posting on the group of, uh, you know, the, the Facebook group from the conference um, asking, you know, following when he first reached out for help, following up for anyone who knew anything that could help. Like social media was so critical in getting him a ride from the airport when he landed in San Francisco. It was, it was, it was critical to his, um, to his evacuation. So that's his, that's his stance on it. And I really, I see the value in it. Um, I'm not a big social media person myself. I think there's a lot of, um, we live in a world where, when you put something online, it stays online forever. And um, especially when working on political issues or activism, um, you have to be a little bit careful on, on what you put up yeah, there. Yeah, for sure. So I'm a, I'm a little bit more cautious on social media these days. So have you ever been um, nervous for your own safety as part of your activism? And what does that feel like? <sighs> yeah, there's two types of safety. There's there's physical safety and there's emotional safety. I think the physical safety, yeah, you feel it. You can, you, you opt in to the amount of risk you want to take sometimes. And sometimes by being an activist and putting yourself in situations, sometimes you, there's a lot of unexpected um, consequences. Uh, I've been in Palestinian communities, for example, where the Israeli army will show up to start demolishing a, uh, a home or a structure or a, a water cistern. And it's, there's a lot of military force that's used um, in those sort of circumstances that, that, yeah, I felt, I felt scared for my, my physical safety and scared also for physical safety of other people. I'm privileged in the scenario of being both a woman and a Jew and an international that I'm I'm generally like uh, people don't want to get get too close to me, um, but yeah, the Palestinians that I'm in partnership with face that physical violence a little bit more often. That's where I felt the most physically unsafe here. Here, um, emotional safety. Were you able to stop that incident from occurring with the water system? Uh, look, when you have some activists being being confronted by armed military, there's only so much you can do. There's, you know, where as activists, we're nonviolent, we aren't going to fight back in any way. We might, you know, if we're rehabilitating 
uh, a road and they show up, like we might keep working on the road, but there's not much more we can do. Uh, or at least for me, like I'm, I'm not going to put my body in front of a, a bulldozer because I have <laughs> some limits to what feels safe for me, but other people feel differently. Um, I think the biggest one for me is like the emotional safety. I mean, working with communities that are marginalized, you're, you're also like exposed to some, uh, yeah, exposed to the hardships here is like carries an emotional toll. Um, it's really important to be a part of a community that supports you and to have strong partnerships, not just like with activists, but within my own community, but also the Palestinian partners that I'm working with. Um, is really important to like per, sort of support the emotional safety of all of this as well. For sure. So I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of people can relate to seeing yeah. injustice in the world or in their in their house or seeing something but feeling a bit hopeless as to what they can actually do about it. What advice would you have there when something yeah. seems futile or is kind of futile in, in at least objectively changing the outcome of mm. something short term? Um talk about it with your friends not just like hit share on a Facebook post but really talk about it like even if it feels hard and you feel like you don't know enough or you don't have uh, maybe a, a clear opinion and stance engaging with the issues is the first step and through that maybe you can find what you know if there's something that that motivates you to, to do something but um, yeah I think the first thing is to just learn ask questions talk to people and in your work you're trying to build um you're trying to build a voice be, be a voice where nobody's there to re represent the other side yeah I, I think i i like to um i mean my voice is not necessarily the voice that's interesting here um neither really is my story so much i i, I think for some people maybe my story is interesting but Really, the, the stories that are the most interesting are the stories from the communities themselves. And for me, that's what I try to center in the work that I'm doing and the activism that I'm doing. And in Muhammad's story, you know, it's it's really important that their voices are the ones that we listen to and their stories are the ones that we um, uplift. So what are your goals for like the future? And do you see activism being a central mm -hmm. part of that? Is it like mm -hmm. your career? I don't know. It's uh, it's really, it's the question that changes the most. The, the answer changes the most as I learn new things, both about like content, professionally learn new things, but also learn things about myself and um, what's important to me in my day to day, what's important to me professionally, financially, socially. I mean, that really influences the answer to that question. I think, yeah, it's, it, I don't know if a activism is the central tenant to my existence, but the values that drive my activism now will for sure drive what I end up doing in the future. I think the work that I'm doing now, working in water management, is certainly something that I'll, I'll love to continue doing. Um, I'd love to figure out a way to integrate more of the, the work and activism on the community level with maybe some of the more like strategic decision-making that I'm doing now. Uh, that would be a, a goal. And I don't know what it looks like, yeah. um, but it's something that I'm working towards. What do you think about like the social entrepreneurship field? There's huge potential there. I, I really think that's, I mean, that's such an incredible place to really bring community-led solutions to uh, to scale. And there's actually even in the water sector some really interesting work being done to you know, waste into energy, turn waste into something really productive. And I think there's 
absolute huge potential to to have impact if it can be brought to a scale and if it can be really driven from the community level. Yeah, I guess social entrepreneurship, I never thought of it from like a global standpoint. It just seems so far away hmm. and so intricate. It could also be so close to home. Yeah, that's true as well. <laughs> it could be from, from home. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just a couple of yeah. more questions. Like, how do you measure your impact? Because for what I do as an entrepreneur, I mean, on the one hand, there's never enough. But on the other hand, I'm doing the most that I can do at the moment. So like, how, how do you reconcile it? Like you having an impact in one community out there, a hundred of them, and you said there's 60 million people. Like, does that drive you crazy? Does that inspire you? What, what do you do with knowing that there's more? Or is it spreading awareness that becomes your goal? Yeah, I guess I, wow, that's a really good question. Measuring impact. What's coming to mind is like, yeah, I mean, there's two levels, like on the like water professional side of things, there are indicators to measure impact. Like, I mean, you've also saved a life already, right? <laughs> like, so that's <laughs> it's not necessarily a viable thing. It's sure. As qualitative as it gets, yeah. this question of impact. Like, sure. I, I, I've spoken about this with a few friends. Like, mm. we don't know if the net effect of Facebook has been positive on the universe. Right. And we don't know the net effect of just doing something as simple as smiling to someone on the street and saying hello is you know, that, that yeah. would help them do something that becomes super positive for the universe. And then you've got Facebook, which we're not even sure is positive. Totally. And so yeah. how do you reconcile something tiny with something huge? Mm. So I, I don't think it's that quantifiable. No. Personally, but anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think you're right. I think like, you know, something, if I'm talking about the impact that I'm having on like working within my Jewish community to ask questions about what's happening in Israel like what, how do I measure impact of that? Like the situation on the ground isn't really changing, but if I can have a conversation with my mom or like some teacher of mine from middle school about what's happening here and, um, they show some signs of curiosity or like, yeah, my mom is a great example. I've seen the way that like, she's gone from not really understanding to what I'm doing to being a little bit curious and how she's like starting to have conversations with her friends about what I'm doing or what's happening here. And that's to me a, a very non-quantifiable way of seeing impact. And it's it's the one that's I think also the most like emotionally uh, rewarding. It's not, yeah, something tangible. It's, it's, um, it's the, yeah, that's the sort of impact I sort of, I hold on to more than I do anything else. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Maybe it's like an emotional, maybe like emotions are a good proxy for yeah. knowing what your impact is. One of the first projects I worked on here, the funder asked if we could report on an indicator for you know impact that's um, that demonstrates that the perception change of Israelis and Palestinians of the other. And I remember spending a long time trying to quantify that indicator. How do we how do we measure that? Do we give a survey out to participants? Like, what do you think of Israelis before a conference or after a conference? Yeah, it's um, their impact is really hard to measure on this level. That's, but you know, there are experts that probably have better answers than that. There are actually people that know how to measure those impacts. Uh, not me. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, because sometimes when you measure it, you can get a bit, you can get a bit fatigued or spoiled and not know where to start. Sure. <laughs> so maybe it doesn't actually lead to action sure. to the same extent that your drive does. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> so interesting. So, where do people learn more about what you do? Like, how, what do you want to leave people mm. with? Wow, there are so many fascinating stories out there of folks that are doing some really interesting work 
whatever the issue is, whether it's specifically Israeli Palestinian work or like water work or refugee work, I think the the best way to learn more is to get personal stories from people. They're they're everywhere. They're on social media. They're on they're on Twitter or they're on some interest. Find those quiet little blogs. Are there any news publications that that you kind of trust and rely on that maybe share these kinds of stories? Yes. I mean, the the news source that I rely on here is a news publication called 972 plus 972. Um, It's investigative journalism of like people from communities based here reporting on what they're seeing. They're pretty not tied up in some of the financial challenges of news sources here and are pretty independent and reporting what's really happening on the ground. A lot of personal stories in that. And I find it to be a really fascinating source reporting on things that don't get reported on often. Israel's story also has some interesting lenses into angles of society that we don't often think about here. There are many. I'm happy to share some links. Okay. Yeah, perfect. I can include them in the post. Um, and the last question. And read the fox hunt for sure. <laughs> That's the best story to That's read. <laughs> yeah. The last question that I like to ask people is, what is a belief that you have that not many other people believe or yet believe? Hmm. <laughs> Easy question. Well, this is going to be maybe controversial if uh, most of the folks you're speaking to are entrepreneurs and and from the business world. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't think I measure success by the income that I generate. Um, I think it's really important to have a stable source of income. Uh, I, I'm saying this from a point of privilege where I do have uh, a salary and money going into my bank account every month. But um, I probably could be making double, triple if I wanted to with the skills that I have and have built over the, you know, the last six or seven years working on these issues. But And the degrees that you have. And the degrees that I have, <laughs> yeah. And, and Oxford, right? <laughs> correct. But my, yeah, I think for me, success is like a product of feeling like the work that I'm doing is meaningful and soul-giving and that I can be a part of a beautiful community and supported and, and have a sense of home and... I'm empowered to really be uh, a leader in the work that I'm doing. And um, that's, to me, the success, maybe more than than the, the the paycheck. So that's, yeah, that's my thing. That's pretty inspiring. And very last, <laughs> how can people contact you if they need to or if they would like to? Are you on Twitter? You know, not really on Twitter. I have Twitter, but I don't really use it. Um, I'm on Facebook. And... Uh, yeah, you're welcome to reach out to me there. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks, Natasha. Great to have sure. you. Sure. <laughs> thanks for sharing. Super inspiring. Thanks, Adam. It was wonderful. All right. Thank you. It was really a pleasure to, to speak with you. Well, I'll have a read of that book. Great. And I look forward to seeing yeah. the review when it's out as well. <laughs> I'd, love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks, Natasha. Thanks for having me on the show, Adam. It was a pleasure talking. Thanks for staying up late, too. Over in Israel. <laughs> sure. My pleasure. <laughs> Take care. Bye.